people need to realize is that it took 43.2% of GDP injected directly into the veins of the economy on the fiscal side, plus $120 billion a month on the part of the Fed, a double-barreled approach in order to keep markets where they are today. The hope that the fiscal side is going to hang in there, plus the Fed, is what's levitating markets today. Nobody wants to talk about the fact that we're already in the midst of a fiscal drag, contractionary fiscal impulse right now, and talking about, oh, the market's a price to taper in. So I, I cannot see markets hanging in there unless they say, oh gosh, we've got a slowing economy. The Fed's not gonna taper, they're gonna go in the other direction. Thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with former Fed insider, Danielle DiMartino Booth. If you haven't yet watched part one of our discussion with Danielle, in which she enumerates the many challenges that are making this one of the most uncertain times for the Federal Reserve in its 100 plus year history, head over to our channel at youtube.com Wealthion and watch it there first. It sets the context for the investment perspective that Danielle and our partners at New Harbor Financial share in this video. And don't forget to support this channel by first liking this video and then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. If everyone watching right now takes these two simple steps, it really does help this channel reach a lot more people. Okay, let's get started watching part two of our interview with Danielle DiMartino Booth. Very last question on the Fed topic before we get to markets. Um, Danielle, I make you empress tomorrow where you can put forth any reforms, any changes at all to the current Federal Reserve System, including abolishing it, if that's what you decide to do. What are the biggest changes that you'd want to put in place early on? I've always been um, of the opinion that the heads of the district banks should be confirmed by the Senate and should be independent and that the that the district banks should be equally federal in nature uh, so as to not be compromised in any way, shape or form because they do provide a viable function of this is what's happening in the regional economy of the country. And we have many large countries inside of a $21 trillion economy. So you can't just say it's all gonna be, it's all gonna be monitored in DC, that doesn't work. But by the same token, I think there's a lot of conflicts to be taken out. There are also, there's also a lot of Federal Reserve districts to be eradicated that are no longer needed that might have been in 1913 to get the Federal Reserve Act passed. I would raise the floor to 2%, never go back down to zero again. Zero is a total train wreck. I would get out of the business of quantitative easing as much as that might hurt. And I would, I would bring back the 1951 Accord Treasury Federal Reserve Accord, established, by the way, by William McChesney Martin, my hero, right after Paul Volcker, and make sure that the Fed always was obligated to stay out of the financial markets and allow market pricing to be done by market forces. And by the way, take away the employment mandate of 1977, which is in direct conflict with minimizing inflation. And that's about my, that's my short list. Okay. Okay. That, that's a good list. And those, those are some big, bold uh, decisions. Get rid of the employment mandate. Uh, interest rates can't go below 2%. Fed can't intervene in markets anymore. Um, so, things. yeah. So it, it, it sounds like, in, so we're transitioning to markets now, and I, I, but I want to tug at that thread as we do. Um, yeah. So it sounds like, uh, and I, I would sort of 
show my cards and say, I, I just can't think of any other way to get to a better future than this, but we, we kind of got to let the malinvestment clear from the system and that that's going to be really painful. But if, if we don't take the pain now, we're just going to take a greater pain down the system by uh, down the road by trying to prop the system up for, for longer and longer. Are you of a similar mindset? It sort of sounds like you are. Well, look, uh, fiscal policy screwed the small business owner in America. Nobody disputes that. And to me, that means that if you let the one in one in five, 20% of U.S. companies that are effectively zombies go away, there are probably a lot of great innovators and great thinkers in their wake who can thereby make room for them to come out and have new businesses be born after we get rid of the detritus, the deadwood in the system. So I would never advocate for keeping a zombie alive. And in, in fact, the, the zombification if you will, the growing of the corporate debt market from 10 trillion prior to the pandemic to, to 11 and a half trillion today, all that's done is ensure that there are going to be more heads that rolls when the when these companies do go because there's less there, there there's less in the way of assets to be clawed back for value, so that you can mitigate the damage to the to the workforce for this particular company. So, it, it's zombies have there, there's there's nothing beneficial about them. There's no redeeming feature about them, but because we have hurt small businesses so badly by design, by government policy, we know that there are some bright minds and good business people out there. Why not let them rise to the top? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's sort of what cre the creative destruction, you know, behind sort of true capitalism is supposed to be, right? Is you, you, you get the old inefficient institutions out there and smaller, new, brighter, more innovative players come on in. And, and certainly the Fed's intervention, you know, it's been it's been preventing that for, for so long now. Since yeah. long-term capital management, yes. Yeah, exactly. So, all right, well, look, so um, looking at the markets then, we've got, um, we, we, we've got this, you know, zombie fleet of corporations you've mentioned several times. We've got the slowing economic growth, which, which really is, kind of secular at this point in time because it, it pre-existed before we had all the pandemic craziness. Um, and yet we have uh, financial asset prices, you know, back at all time highs. So as you look in your crystal ball down the road, um, what, what's your general outlook for the financial markets from here? So I, I think that everything really hinges on the debt ceiling right now and how quickly it's resolved uh, markets are not prepared. Uh, the state of California was. They, they got a stimulus check 4.0 right before Newsom's re-election. So, um, so that was good, timing-wise. And um, there is the child, the, the, the child tax credit. That runs out at the end of the year. So a third of individuals who would otherwise be looking for jobs right now are not because their spouse is employed. But you add to that the fact that they're getting on average $550 a month cash from the government with child tax credits. So we still are spending cash money in stimulus payments. So if that goes away, if the debt ceiling situation gets really ugly, if the social spending one and a half, three and a half, what if Manchin says one and a half, the, the Democrats say three and a half, Bernie says six trillion. If, if that is as stalled as it appears to be or is as slimmed down as it appears to be, and drawn out over a 10 year period, then there's nothing that's gonna prevent going into the midterms of, of November, 20, we're talking about a year from now. There's nothing that's gonna prevent the US economy from slowing without 
genuine, true cash injections to individuals, which I can't foresee with individuals such as Joe Manchin walking the planet. All right, and so market-wise, what does that translate into? That, trans that, that translates into top-line weakness. And you can do all kinds of things to, to fiddle with your bottom line and you know, EPS and one-time charges. There's nothing you can do to hide revenue declines, nothing. Okay, so do you think that, so first off, if just- At a minimum, an earnings recession. Okay, great. So I'm, I'm gonna say first off, if the debt ceiling like doesn't pass, you know, things go to hell in a handbasket real fast. Um, but in, in the, the world you're talking about where maybe something's, you know, slimmed down passes and whatnot, um, but we're not getting substantial injections of cash the way we have been, things stall out, we have an earnings recession. Do you see the market just sort of kind of limping along at a plateau or do you see potential risk for, you know, a correction of, of some substantial magnitude? So I think what people need to realize is that it took 43.2% of GDP injected directly into the veins of the economy on the fiscal side, plus $120 billion a month on the part of the Fed, a double-barreled approach in order to keep markets where they are today. The hope that the fiscal side is going to hang in there, plus the Fed, is what's levitating markets today. Nobody wants to talk about the fact that we're already in the midst of a fiscal drag, contractionary fiscal impulse right now and talking about, oh, the market's a price to taper in. So I, I cannot see markets hanging in there unless they say, oh gosh, we've got a slowing economy. The Fed's not gonna taper, they're gonna go in the other direction. They're gonna increase their quantitative easing and Congress will be forced going into a midterm to save their asses, to do everything they can to pass stimulus going into November, 2022. If we see that, fine, we might see markets continue to stay levitated. But the odds of that happening after what happened in Georgia, the night that the, the, that the devil went down in Georgia and swung the Senate, I, I see things as getting uglier, politically speaking, than not headed into the midterm elections. Okay. So for folks watching this, you know, the main reason behind the whole Wealthian channel is to help folks, um, you know, build wealth over time. So people are looking at their wealth and they're looking at the macro outlook and they're trying to say, okay, so how do I want to be positioned here? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're saying, look, without substantial new fresh stimulus over the next year, um, you would probably, it sounds like you're probably saying defense is probably a good thing to prioritize. Look, if you look back to 2011, gold outperformed to the greatest, 2011 was when we had a massive, uh, Debt, debt ceiling standoff, which this is a this is a longer one than that so far. So when you look back at that era, consumer staples, Costco just had blowout earnings. Um, consumer staples did well. The Russell 2000 got cooked. It was awful. Um, gold did really well. Uh, longer maturity treasuries did really well as well. Those asset classes that outperformed in in in, in a time of distress, they would tend to be where you would hide. Okay. And again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're saying, hey, maybe it's time to start looking more closely at those asset classes because of the risks that you just enumerated. Because of the hedges that they present. Yeah. Okay. Um, so just because the word hedge went out of Danielle's mouth right there, I just want to remind folks, uh, if you're watching this channel and haven't seen it yet, uh, we published a video a couple of weeks ago called How to Hedge Against a Market Correction. I'll put up a link to it right here. It just walks through the most common 
uh, tools and vehicles that you can use to hedge your portfolio, you know, for a lot of the risks that Danielle's talking about. Um, all right, Danielle, well, look, um, uh, we're getting near the end here. Um, one question I want to ask you, though, is let's assume the kind of general status quo continues for a while. Um, and really what I'm talking about or what I want to dial in on is um, the, you know, the accelerating wealth inequality in this, well, I was going to say in this country, but it's in a lot of countries around the world. And it's largely caused by the policies that the, the Federal Reserve is helping enable here, you know, the twin barrels of monetary stimulus from the Fed and then increased fiscal stimulus that we've seen over the past year and a half. Um, you know, the chief beneficiary um, of the rise in asset prices that are a result from those two things are the people who own the assets. And, you know, sadly, uh, it's something like, um, I can't remember the stat. It's like the top ten percent of households own eighty percent of the world's. Uh, you know, uh, the new, yeah, the, the new report, the fresh data that came out at eighty nine percent. Okay, yeah. So you know, basically, it's becoming a world of of it's the richest world, and the rest of us just kind of live in it. The way that things are going here. So how how worried are you that in addition to just sort of the instability of the economic system and, and stuff we're talking about here, could we get to a boiling over point? where um, things just get so bad for you know, the bottom 90% uh, that they just you know, start taking the fight to the people running the show. Yeah, I, I was just in Paris. And um, you know, the one thing I wanted to see was the Banque de France uh, because that is what was attacked uh, a few years ago. You know, they tried to set fire to, the, to France's central bank uh, a few years ago. So I, I do think that, that there is a higher awareness, especially because of social media, of the role that the Fed has played. And more importantly, income inequality is very much an economic issue, uh, as much as it's a societal one. And when you have the riches going to such a small concentrated cohort of individuals, you end up stifling economic growth, you end up stifling innovation. So I, I, not enough can be said about not just again societal and people taking to the streets and what have you, but also the economic damage that's done by income inequality, by not educating your youth, by not providing ladders with, you know, to to to, to climb and, and find your own American dream or whatever the country it is. So uh, there there will be a price to be paid, and and the, what what the progressives who I call regressives are suggesting is not the solution. You don't pay people to not work. There's no dignity in that. And in the end, they're angrier than they were to begin with. So um, I, I, I do hope, and I have been hearing of a whole new way of looking at the country. We forget that we have a constitution in this country that can do things like impose term limits or get rid of collective bargaining. So we get rid of the teachers unions who have been mothers and children's worst enemies in this pandemic. So there are things that can be done. There are political leaders who, uh, who like Joe Manchin can represent the, the moderates and the silent majority of the country that don't have a voice. So if we're at that point in our history to where change is a must, then maybe there can be change for the better so that there can be a voice for a broader swath of Americans rather than just have senators who are so old you need to dust them off and don't you know don't know how to change policy if you paid them so actually that's not true they're paid to not change policy so i'm, I'm trying to be hopeful that this inequality ends up 
causing a groundswell of optimism for a better type of change? Gosh, well, I certainly hope uh, it does, and I hope it does it in a positive way. Um, all I can tell is I'm seeing more and more ire that um, is certainly caused by the inequality, and maybe the, the people who are getting angry don't always tie it back directly to the Fed in their minds, but um, you know, whether it's, it's uh, you know, younger generations that feel just completely priced out. I actually, I'll, I'll put up a chart here. Um, I put out a tweet uh, the other day of this chart, which shows that um, now approximately one in four uh, houses that, that sell are now bought by an investor or investing, investment group, right? Where, you know, not only are prices getting so high that, that you know, younger generations can't, you know, get into the housing market, but you know, if this trend continues, you know, we're increasingly just going to become a nation of renters, right? To our elitist corporate overlords, um, we provide a disincentive uh, to savers, right? Because we, the Fed's policies, we absolutely bank account doesn't return anything, right? So we we've we've literally taught people not to save that it, it, saving is for losers. Uh, and then, you know, on the other end of the age spectrum, um, people can't retire on a fixed income anymore the way that they used to. I mean, that, that yeah. basically yeah. was sort of the social contract. True, but we have millions of extras go ahead and do that, do just that, and take lower payments for Social Security for the rest of their lives during the pandemic. So things are going to get very interesting. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, look, Danielle, I could talk with you for hours. Um, thank you so much for, for giving us so much time today. I'll give you the last word. As I mentioned, you know, people watching this channel are doing so to become better informed, to be able to make you know, more intelligent decisions about how to protect and build their wealth. But uh, given everything we talked about, is there any parting advice you have for those viewers? Yes, please, please subscribe to quillintelligence.com. <laughs> oh, well, I'm getting there too. I'll give you a chance to, but, um, but yes, they it, should, they should it, subscribe. It's, it, 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 it's tongue in cheek that I say that, but I think, I, I think that the missing link here is not necessarily for people to just do as others or tell them to do, but take the time to educate themselves every single day and stay as abreast of the, the, the ongoing developments in the economy, in the financial markets, understand things as well as they can, do as much of their own homework as they can, so they can contextualize the advice and the guidance that they're given. Well, seeing a sister is all I can say. Um, yes, uh, investing in your, your financial literacy uh, so that you are armed and, and you know, can be making the most informed, best fit decisions for yourself really is one of the best investments you can make. Absolutely. Now, Danielle, where can people who are interested in following you and learning more about your work go? And I will start by saying, absolutely, they should subscribe to Quill Intelligence. <laughs> Just come on quillintelligence.com, please. Uh, we, we, we've got a great daily, it's, it's informative, it's entertaining, um, and it's always different and something new. So we'd love to have you subscribe. If you don't follow me on Twitter already, uh, follow me at Demartino Booth. Uh, they say it's a free MBA, so just come on in and get it because I'm not charging. I'm like Bernie Sanders, but much more entertaining. <laughs> well, and as somebody who paid for an expensive MBA, I sure wish your Twitter account had been around then, Danielle. Uh, I do follow it daily. Uh, everybody who's at all remotely curious about uh, you know what's going on in the financial world, uh, in the world of monetary, you know the Fed and all, all the drama going on there. Um, the lens of looking through Danielle's eyes through her Twitter account re really is one of the best 
values out there. And of course it's free, but, but the, uh, the inside is, is, is priceless in many ways. All right. Well, Danielle, look, I'm looking forward to seeing you in just a couple of days. We'll be speaking at uh, Brian London's uh, New Orleans investment conference. I think we'll actually be in the same panel together. So I look forward to seeing you then, but thank you so much for the time today. And uh, really hope we can have you back on later on in the year. I look forward to it as well. See you in New Orleans and I'll look forward to the next time. Thank you. Well, well, just a phenomenal interview there with Danielle DiMartino Booth. Now is the time on the program where we talk with Wealthion's endorsed financial partners about what the market has done over the past week. I'm joined as usual today by Mike Preston and John Lodra of New Harbor Financial. Hi, guys. Hello, Adam. Nice to see you. Hello again, Adam. Well, guys, like I said, phenomenal discussion with Danielle. Uh, she makes the Fed sound like Game of Thrones. Um, got a number of questions for you guys, but just real quick, would love your guys' uh, initial reaction to what Danielle said. Um, Mike, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I always enjoy uh, Danielle's talk. I mean, she's a Fed insider, and the Fed is the problem. We've been saying it here over and over again. I, you know, I think we've got a corrupt system at this point, completely completely controlled, uh, printing $120 billion a month, basically, and uh, you know, buying that many bonds every month in permanent QE. And she says they can't hike rates, you know, because, uh, well, they can't hike rates and they need to hike rates because inflation is getting out of control, but they can't hike rates because there's so many zombie corporations that rely on, on the high yield market and they, they rely on the stimulus that just keeps coming. So, you know, and at the same time, they can't hike rates because the federal debt is up to $30 trillion. So the Fed is really backed into a corner. Bottom line is that we think a moment of, of reality, a moment of justice is coming. This market is completely fake at this point and relies on continued stimulus. And so um, I, I think that she says it better than almost anyone else and as direct as anyone else that uh, I've listened to. All right, John. I just had a couple of things. I, I too, I... I... Fascinating every time you have Danielle on. She's a stellar guest, as as all your guests are. But you know, I I, uh, I measure the uh, takeaways by how many pages of notes I write, and I think I set a record on this one. Um, I really uh, really appreciate the depth and and um, perspective that she brings to this conversation because markets are controlled by the Fed, as Mike just noted, and we've been talking about. I really appreciated her her nuanced um, calling out of, of some some under the surface kind of. Um, things going on there. So, for example, the drama uh, and the almost chessboard, um, you know, gamesmanship that seems to be surrounding the whole idea or, or um, milestone event of, of whether uh, Jay Powell gets renominated or uh, L Laurel Brannard gets uh, appointed or somebody else. And uh, man, it, it it plays out like a soap opera. I mean, her chairing the the the, the position that is supposedly uh, responsible responsible for um, monitoring and improving uh, the policymakers' personal trades and things like that. At the same time, we're now having headlines come out about one after another, most recently the chair himself, about you know, what any layperson would, would see as inappropriate trades for self-enrichment, you know, self or at least the, the looks of that. Man, um, it, it's like a soap opera. It couldn't get more, more dramatic, in, in my opinion. Okay. Yeah, I know. We all think of the Fed as, as the people running the Fed is probably the most boring people on the world. But Danielle is showing us that uh, it's very much not the case, apparently. And uh, it will be fun to have her back on as we get closer to um, February, which is when uh, Powell's uh, term is up. Um, all right, guys. Well, look, um, 
Mike, you alluded to this, but D Danielle went through a, kind of a number of concerns that led her to conclude that now really is a time for defense, uh, you know, if, if you're an investor. Um, she's very worried about where the markets might go for the reasons that she elucidated. But, but the key fundamentals there are, um, you know, just a, a, a slowing economy. Uh, and that issue, you know, that, that reality preceded the coronavirus. Um, so we were already having issues with just sort of secular economic deceleration, and we've now returned to that. Um, we've got uh, the monetary taper, right? So monetary stimulus is planned to taper out, as we talked about, uh, and that the fiscal stimulus is trickling out. Um, uh, John, uh, you sent over a tweet that Danielle put out back in September that I'm going to put up here right now. But, you know, she was warning about this um, before the latest, uh, uh, you know, theatrics uh, that have been happening in the news. Uh, but she was, you know, noting that, hey, look, you know, with the fiscal stimulus uh, decreasing here, we are going to be facing one of the largest fiscal cliffs uh, in history. Uh, and it looks like that that's only going to get harder now when you're seeing the resistance that people like Joe Manchin, whom she mentioned, or Kirsten Cinema from uh, Arizona, uh, another Democrat uh, senator that is fighting uh, spending what the Democratic Party wants to spend on this next infrastructure bill. So it's looking like it's going to be harder and harder to get more fiscal stimulus out the door. And of course, that's when monetary stimulus is trickling. So we have we the markets have been used to this double barrel shotgun of, of stimulus from the Fed and from Congress. Now it looks like both barrels are drying up, drying up. And you know, when we had Michael Pinto on this program, he basically said this is his defining uh, theme for 2022 which is, he says, we're going to face the largest fiscal cliff and monetary cliff simultaneously than we've ever faced in history before. Um, so, you know, I think Danielle is, is she's really onto something when she says, look, you know, uh, markets have been become dependent upon that stimulus uh, to, to rise or even maintain their current heights. So without that, there's a big risk that there could be a really big air pocket beneath uh, today's markets. Um, and, and the inflation that you, you mentioned there, um, Mike, uh, you know, even if the Fed and Congress want to return to issuing more stimulus, it's going to be hard, uh, at least while inflation's raging. You know, you, when, when inflation gets out of control, you have to raise rates or you get an even bigger problem, especially, you know, with an angry populace that's going to vote all the politicians out of office. So anyways, guys, I'm just sort of going through this list, of course, I didn't even mention the debt ceiling, which is a huge wild card here, because that could make things go to hell in a, in a hurry, uh, if, if that really doesn't get uh, addressed uh, this year. Um, but getting back to Danielle's original point, you know, hey, this is a time for defense. And she walked through a number of hedges. And uh, that, I think, to me, struck me as very similar to how you guys see the world. So, uh, John, why don't we start with you? But I'm assuming you're in agreement with her. Uh, what did you think about the uh, the assets that she listed off there as potential ones for investors to look at more closely now? Yeah, I'd like to hit hit on that in just a moment, Adam. I, I first don't want to lose the opportunity to, you know, kind of highlight just the the enormous amount of fiscal and monetary support or re-highlight. You know, as as Daniel pointed out, was you know 43.2 percent of of annual GDP in the form of fiscal stimulus. I don't think folks realize how much corporate America was saved by this massive injection, a save that can't be repeated, certainly in light of the you know, challenges of the fiscal conversations going on right now. And the real economy needs to make up for that. That's, that's almost an impossible task. So 
the levitation of the stock market in this in the response to massive amounts of consumer spending that was fueled by stimulus payments and things like that. Um, you know, triple B almost junk rate uh, uh, rated companies being stick saved by uh, unprecedented uh, Fed buying of corporate bonds, which technically, if you read the Federal Reserve uh, Act, is illegal. Um, they they basically formed you know Enron Enron like off 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 balance sheet entities to allow this. Um, you know, so so I don't think folks realize uh, in in everyday thought how how significant and supportive that massive stimulus was and uh, you know how difficult nearly impossible we be for the real economy to make up for that and its, its absence and as Danielle put it I think very succinctly we're now just right back perhaps to the, the economy we had uh, pre-COVID uh, in late 2019 which is a slowly slowing economy but one that seems to be accelerating slower growth as the as you're pointing out uh, Adam the uh, the uh, GDP now estimate of the Fed, um, Atlanta Fed, went from 6% in, I forget if it was August or September, to just 1.2% right now. So, so we got some challenges that I'm quite sure. But back to your, your original question, she talked about gold, she talked about consumer staple stocks, you know, basically the stuff that did well in, in, in 2011 when this kind of similar fiscal drama played out. Um, you know, she, she talks about most stocks, especially the Russell 2000, you know, um, you know, small cap stocks, small mid cap stocks not doing well. Um, yeah, we agree. Uh, defense and, and things like precious metals, um, um, very light stock allocations, if, if, as light as one feels comfortable getting is, is kind of in a word how we how we feel folks should be positioned for this because there will be a better opportunities ahead. Yeah, and, and, and one thing that she didn't mention, but that we talk about in this program a fair amount, uh, you know, is, is actual hedges, you know, like putting stops using, uh, you know, very simply putting stops, but, um, you know, using uh, options, not in a speculative way, but in a way to protect any potential long positions that you have, all that kind of stuff that folks can find in that, that hedging video that you and you guys and I created a few weeks back that I mentioned earlier in the program. Um, all right. And John, just, just to underscore a point you made there about um, how, uh, you know, unprecedented the level of stimulus was and how completely, uh, you know, dependent so much of, of the economy is now on uh, on that stimulus. You sent over a chart today that maybe you can just speak to for a second here. Um, but you know, to Danielle's comment about how many, what percentage of, of corporate America now is, are, are zombie companies? Um, you brought out a really surprising chart that shows that uh, we're at an all time high for companies in the Russell three thousand growth index that aren't making any money. Correct. Yeah, uh, a Boston-based GMO put out a recent piece. It was a short piece, but it, it was very succinct, and it showed a chart of the percentage of Russell 3000 companies that they classify as growth, you know, basically with negative earnings, making not making money or making negative earnings losses, and it's uh, over 60%. Uh, the only times in recent history, so going back to 1980, this chart is, um, never been even close to this. The, the most, you know, the closest it was was about 60% at the peak of the tech bubble in 2000. And even in um, 2008-9 period, it was, it was only about 45%. So we have, and, and the point of GMO's piece is that people have been making money on companies that are losing money. That is a classic bubble, uh, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, feature, I suppose, where, and I think they point out that this, this basket of stocks returned at like 84% uh, over, over a given time frame. 
um, over the last two years through this past August, where their value counterparts returned uh, less than half of that. So just not only these companies, you know, losing money at a higher percentage than ever before, but but that's where the the returns have been, almost like you can't believe it. And and it usually, if history's any guide, um, the outperformance is is paid back through similar underperformance on the other side of this thing. Right. Well, I mean, that was the hallmark of the dot com bubble. Um, was the least profitable companies were the ones that were the highest flyers. And of course, those were the ones that fell the most. Well, as you said, looking at that chart, where we are today is an even greater extreme than we were <laughs> in terms of the number of unprofitable companies versus uh, uh, that, that are, uh, versus the, the dot-com bubble. So, I mean, it's just uh, to your point of, of it being a classic sign of a late stage bubble. I mean, I, I, if this thing indeed does pop soon, I don't know what other signs people would have needed to say, look, you know, danger, take precautions. So anyways, Mike, let, let me let me come to you with a question here. So, you know, right now we're at that point in the story where we're seeing, um, you know, still lots and lots of, of excess speculation and asset prices. And, um, you know, the S&P is now back over 4,500. Uh, Bitcoin has now hit an all-time high. Uh, we have had David Hunter on this program who has talked about um, his prediction that uh, the S&P has to have a, a crazy blow off top before this everything bubble can really, uh, you know, puncture and reverse. And uh, so anyways, he's been he's been calling for all year uh, for higher highs than we've we've seen yet to date and still is. And it's interesting because even just a couple of weeks ago when the market was getting um, jittery, there are a lot of people that were really, you know, telling him that he was uh, he was going to be proven wrong, but now it seems more and more people are jumping back on that bandwagon as prices are heading back up. And I just want to point out that Scott Minerd, who's a very well-respected uh, senior investor out there, he's the CIO at Guggenheim Partners. He thinks stocks have bottomed and will rally from here. He said, quote, there's an old saying that markets climb a wall of worry. We have a big wall ahead of us, which means we can still have a big bull market. So are we are we seeing right now uh, the the blow off top, the melt up uh, that Hunter has been predicting before his you know gargantuan sixty five to eighty percent meltdown that he expects to follow? I don't really know, Adam, for sure. Um, obviously, but it's, it certainly looks like it. A week ago, I said on this program that you know the markets were were only down four percent from their all time high. Markets took about a couple months sideways action, you know, and moved slowly down up to about four, four and a half percent. And in the last five days, we've had five straight big up days with four of those five having overnight gaps. So the market continues to go up easy and down hard. It's, it's really backwards uh, compared to really the last hundred years or so. Markets usually uh, take the stairs up and the elevator down. Uh, this is this is backwards. We're taking the stairs down and the elevator up over and over again. And you know, I'd be careful with predictions like you're describing based on sentiment. Sentiment, I don't think there's a, a wall of worry or negativity out there. We can point to a lot of different things, such as um, you know, uh, investors' intelligence surveys or cash held in mutual funds, things like that are showing all time. Um, all-time highs in terms of complacency and bullishness. So uh, we prefer to, to rest on actual data like valuations, things that actually mean something in terms of returns over the next bunch of years. So 
I don't know. I mean, this market is breathtaking. It's relentless in terms of its upside. It continues to 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 blow me away and to tire out anybody that's trying to to warn about it, frankly. But I last thought is I wouldn't try to play this last move. I mean, even if you're even if you get it right, I think very few people are going to get out in time, and it's just playing with fire. So I don't know. You're right. Bitcoin just hit a new high. That went vertical. You know, almost. $20,000, in a week or two. S&P and other major index indices have gone vertical. All of this on really negative breadth and bad internals in the market, but absolutely nothing has mattered other than this relentless, interminable uptrend. And um, our advice is the same, stay out of it. I don't think anyone's gonna play it right at the very tail of it. All right, well, well said. And I mentioned it here because, you know, Hunter has mentioned, hey, you know, um, Big secular bull markets like we've had end in blow off tops. They've got to climb that last wall of worry, suck everybody in. Seeing numerous quotes in the media recently about the wall of worry, including the Minerd one that I mentioned, um, assuming for a moment it plays out the way that Hunter is predicting, um, to me that tells us where we are in the story, which, which is we're in that final chapter where you have that blow off top before everything corrects. So to your point, Mike, you know, it to me it sort of potentially signals, look, you know, we're, we're right near the end here. So you, you you don't want to be trying to grasp that last nickel, you know, before the game's over. You want to be heading to the exits now before the, the crowd potentially, you know, rushes towards them in a panic. Uh, and again, who knows what the future is going to bring. But, you know, for the things that we track, Mike, you just mentioned a whole bunch of reasons why we can be very, very concerned about the level of um, extreme speculation in the market today. All right. So as we wrap up here, guys, um, I just want to talk briefly about gold. I was one of the assets that Danielle mentioned, uh, and it sort of had an interesting week. Um, it picked itself off the floor. It actually, um, gold itself uh, spiked above uh, 1800 very, very briefly. <laughs> and then it dropped down again. But as we're talking here today on a Wednesday, um, it seems to be showing some strength again. Silver, which had gotten beaten down into the 21s, is now above 24. Um, so it looks like the precious metals are showing they've got some fight in them. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I, absolutely. The precious metals are hanging in there. It's frustrating they're not moving as fast as some of the other risk assets like, you know, tech stocks or Bitcoin. But there's this giant triangle formation going back to August of 20 in gold and in silver. Silver has has successfully held that swing low support area at 22. Uh, gold is, is uh, just looking at it right now, is, is presently at 1784. Four in the spot market that's challenging the 1800 level again, up $14 today. I should say that gold miners had a swing low about a week or two ago. Uh, if you look at, for instance, GDX, it had a swing low just down at 29. It's very quickly climbed up to about 33. It's about a 14, 15% rally all of a sudden, just in about a week. So to me, the, uh, the miners look to have bottomed and uh, even on, on recent, uh, there was a couple of days of weakness in gold where miners held their own. They're signaling that this correction looks over. So, uh, you know, I think it's very constructive. Gold has tried to fake people out to the downside over the last bunch of months. To us, it looks coiled and ready to move. And it, it is puzzling why it's lagging other risk assets. But I wouldn't be surprised to see a break out of that triangle sometime soon and start to move up. 
All right, great. Um, and for those watching who haven't seen it, uh, I did a video interview about two weeks ago with Jeff Clark, senior precious metals analyst at Gold Silver, uh, doing a deep dive specifically into the gold mining industry and how it is historically undervalued at today's prices. And so, if you know what Mike is saying is that we may have seen a swing low here. And uh, there could be some, you know, very nice upside above. Uh, highly recommend you watch that video. And in it, Jeff uh, then links to uh, some presentations he gives where he shares some of his top picks on, on mining stocks. So if you're interested in that sector, there's a lot of meat there. Um, all right, John, I'll let you have the last word as we wrap up this week. Um, based on what you're seeing with, you know, either in the markets or folks contacting you guys, uh, any, any parting advice for folks? Yeah, a couple of quick points. I just want to uh, on the on the melt up scenario that we just touched upon, which you know David Hunter talked about. I think it's really important for folks just to understand the psychology and, and uh, you know that it's not incongruent for a market that's destined to be down huge to be up jaw droppingly quick in the near term. Uh, in fact, you know, I let's just talk about the Japanese market as case in point. Here we are today. 30 years, over 30 years past the peak of the late 90s, and it's still 20% or so down from where it was. That peak was amazingly, you know, it was kind of like today, you know, it was like nothing could do do that market wrong. It shot up, you know, without um, without almost pause. And yet here we are 30 years later, and the market's still down, the Japanese market's down uh, 20% from where it peaked. All to say that, you know, psychology is the key here. Don't misinterpret a near-term melt-up with everything's okay. In fact, that's usually the, the bait to get folks to come in before everything's suddenly not okay in a big way. Um, and yeah, no, I think, um, you know, one of the main things we're talking to clients about is they're starting to worry about inflation. You know, it's becoming headline news, uh, not only on the news, but on their household budgets. So they rightly and understandably, they wanna know what can we do to, to manage inflation? And here's where there's a lot of nuance that, you know, having perspective and data makes a whole lot of sense. You know, most people think automatically that cash is the worst sin you can have in a, in a period that is looking like inflation is ticking up. That is the case over the long term, but not necessarily in the short term, because other the, the question is, what other better places are there? We like precious metals and, and real assets, but you can't have 100% of your portfolio in those. We, we would not recommend that. Um, when you look at most stocks, from where they're valued today, they're likely to be horrible hedges against inflation. It's only after their values reset that they become good hedges. So um, we're having a lot of conversations about that because they're starting to feel it at, at home. And the Federal Reserve talking about transitory. I love Danielle's comment about, you know, uh, apartment leases aren't transitory contracts. They're 12 and 18 month contracts that people are having to sign. And they're at, you know, record high, you know, uh, uh, increases uh, since I think 2001, she said. So that's a key key conversation we're having. It's really important, and it just weighs into the incredible uh, fiscal and, and monetary um, you know, shockwaves that are uh, ahead of us, in our opinion. Well, thanks, John. And if you're a new viewer and you would like to have a conversation like that with a financial advisor who takes into account the risks that Danielle uh, and I talked about and the issues that John, Mike, and I have talked about here, um, if you don't already have a good professional financial advisor to have that conversation with John, Mike, and the team at New Harbor Financial as a complete public service. Uh, they offer free 
no strings attached, no cost, um, personal financial consultations. Um, if you are interested in having one, stick around at the end of the video. It's coming up in just a few seconds uh, where we tell you how you can set up one of those conversations. Um, but they, you know, they'll sit down with you. They'll they'll hear your personal financial situation and they'll just tell you what they think you should do uh, because they are trying to get as many people as possible prudently positioned before you know the risks that we talked about here uh, may fully come express themselves. All right, folks. Um, and if you would like to see more great guests on this channel like Danielle, please support us by hitting the like button and then clicking the subscribe button below, as well as the little bell icon right next to it if you haven't already. Those two simple steps really do help us out. Um, also, if you want to see who's coming on this program next as a guest expert, or even better, suggest someone you'd like to see on this program, just follow me on Twitter at, at Menlo Bear. I listen to every single suggestion that folks make on that channel. Um, all right, John and Mike, thanks so much again for another great interview. And as we say every week, uh, we don't know exactly what's going to happen next, but whatever happens, we'll be tracking it here together. Look forward to seeing you guys next week and everybody else. Thanks so much for watching. Thank you, Adam. Look forward to next time. Likewise, Adam, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth and because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type, the kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic, stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with US citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA but for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-US clients. All right, with all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.